Thank you very much. What a nice warm welcome, ladies and gentlemen. And it's great to be here tonight and to introduce to you two very individual writers with two very individual books, Angela Thurwell and Michael Pennington. Now, the first thing that one should uh, grapple with, I think, Angela, is the fact that you've decided to write a biography of somebody who never existed. <laughs> now, this seems to be quite a difficult task. Tell us how, how did it first occur to you and how did you set about doing it? Well, it first occurred to me because I'd been working on um, Victorian subjects, pre-Raphaelite artists and their wives and their terribly sad marriages and it all ended badly. It all ended in death and there was this inevitable arc of a biography that ended in death and I thought to myself, I don't want to be writing any more about sort of five people in one biography. Why am I making life so terribly difficult for myself? Why don't I think of somebody who had a very short life and who is totally life-enhancing and I don't have to deal with death anymore? And I thought, I'm interested in doing something that is original and experimental with biography itself. And I thought, why don't I write about somebody who's never lived and therefore can never die? And who's got a very, very short life? Who's my favourite writer, Shakespeare? Well, Ophelia had a very, very short life. <laughs> but uh, did I want to spend, you know, three, four, five years of my life with a suicidal teenage girl? <laughs> and I thought, no, I want to find somebody who is full of potential, who is modern, who speaks to me, who is inclusive and, I, and joyful. I wanted somebody who was joyful and would never die. And I suddenly, I think I was in a, um, a bus or a train, I was travelling, and suddenly the idea of Rosalind came to me. And I just thought, this is going to be such fun. And then how to structure it? Well, it had to have the sort of structure of a conventional biography. So she had to have antecedents. She had to have a context. She had to have her virtual sisters in other plays by Shakespeare, other women who'd got into men's clothes to speak the truth. And Rosalind, above all else, is a truth teller. And then I thought, but there must be another interesting structure here, as well as the biographical one and Rosalind's daughters and her life today, her afterlife. And I thought of the structure of the play itself. And so I put it into um, acts and scenes. It has an interval. It has a theatre programme at the end, just as if you were going to the theatre. And so it's got a kind of double structure to it. And I found that um, tremendously fun to do and just life-enhancing and so different from anything I'd ever done before. So that's So I suppose the, that's play, happened. the play is your kind of first port of call. Mm. So you must have studied it. You must have, I mean, how well did you know the play before you started to work on the biography? Well, in fact, I've never studied the play. I'd never done it at school. I'd never done it at university. And that was one of its charms to me, that I wasn't terribly, terribly um, um, over-spoilt by it. It, was, it had a freshness. And then I think in one of the extramural classes that I was teaching, um, at Christmas, we tend to go off-piste and we do something different. We don't do Anna Karenina or um, Middlemarch. And the task that particular Christmas to, was to talk about the character in literature you would most like to have been. 
And that's the germ for me that I talked about Rosalind, having considered Emma and Lizzie Bennet and people like that, I considered Rosalind and I suddenly realised that there was a book here somewhere and that, that was really the germ. So it came from teaching in a way. How many, how many Rosalinds had you seen in your theatre-going experience and which ones? Well, when I was um, sort of on the cusp of being a, um, a teenager, nearly a teenager, I saw that amazingly iconic production that the RSC did. It came to London with Vanessa Redgrave. And that, that I've never, ever forgotten. And it was completely um, mesmerising and incandescent. And then I also, when I was at university, I saw Janet Sussman as uh, Rosalind. Um, I believe I saw Ronald Pickup. And I only know that from an old diary I found, and I know the exact date, but I had to confess to Ronald when I interviewed him for the book that I didn't remember very much about his performance. But he told me all about it, and he told me how he'd, this was an all-male production, and he tried to convey the sort of purity of the passion that Rosalind feels for her Orlando. And he said it was really not about gender at all. And I think that's the point of the play, that it embraces both genders and it's not just for women and it's not just for men. It's for all of us. And I found that particularly um, speaking and attractive and thrilling, really, that she was universal, is universal, as well as an individual. She's often, it's often compared to the sort of female Hamlet. I mean, not in terms of character, but in terms of scale and scope and challenge. I mean, how, what is it that attracts people to playing her, do you think? Well, I think in many ways, Hamlet and Rosalind could have been brother and sister, and they could have met sometime in the Forest of Arden and traded wit, because they're both incredibly witty. Um, but I think the difference is that Hamlet asks whether to be or not to be, and Rosalind asks how to be, how to be, how to love, how to grow up. She opens things up, um, and the arc is not towards death, it is towards life, and the end of her play is only the beginning. It's the beginning of her life with Orlando, and going back to, to um, organise a righteous dukedom with him. So much potential, so much happening. Um, whereas the arc of Hamlet and, I'm, and of King Lear too is that inevitable biographic or historic arc towards death. And I felt that uh, Rosalind had that kind of immortality that made me feel excited and happy to be working on such a subject. Do you, did you feel her presence while you were sort of working away? Did, you, did she kind of slightly take you over in a, in a sense? I think all biographers are taken over by their subjects and um, live with them and are haunted by them and dream of them. And when you finish a biography, as when I finished my biography of William Michael Rossetti and Lucy Maddox-Brown, I felt completely bereaved. 
and when I wrote about Maddox Brown and the women in his life, it's similar. However, with Rosalind, it's such an interesting question you ask me, because because she is forever and for all time, I don't feel bereaved this time. I feel um, it is another beginning, and it's very, very exciting. And um, she's given me that. She's given me that, that joy, really. Michael, have you ever been in a production of As You Like It? No. I haven't at all, and I, I, I'm incredibly grateful to Angela because, although I know all the plays well, I, I know least in a way. It was one of the plays I know least. I've never been in it. I too saw Vanessa Redgraves, Rosalind. It was magnificent, I remember. And so it's had very little impact on me, so your book has done me a great service. But I can absolutely agree there isn't another character I can think of that walks out of their play into the future in the way that Rosalind does. Hamlet dies, Leah dies. Um, Viola is perhaps a little bit too passive, a female hero, and so on. And Rosalind is the absolutely perfect, um, perfect um, um, example, perfect person to choose, really. Um, so I'm, I'm a little bit unschooled. Mm. I mean, what Angela has done, in a way, is mm. quite similar to the process that some actors go through in terms yeah. of thinking about a backstory for their characters, i.e., what, what has taken the character to the point when we, when the play opens and we get to know them in, in a sense. I mean, is this a, do all actors think about their characters in that we're kind of writing a biography for them before they start uh, work on the piece? Either before or as they do it. Mm. Yes, I think they do. I mean, I think you're enormously reassured if you feel or come to feel certain, you know, what their childhoods were like, what happened to them, what their whole history is like, up to the point that the play begins. I think, I mean, that's the Stanislavski and legacy, but probably actors have always done it. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I, think, I think that's very important. So it's very typical. I mean, what a biographer haunting their subject is very much like an actor um, um, haunting or seeking, tra trying to track down their... Because we don't always know, because sometimes they come up with co quite complicated backstories and it's hard for an audience to know the well, process that they've gone through to get to the, yeah. the point of them, how they're sort of coping, how they're dealing with the character. If I could wrench your theme over to King Lear just for a, for a second. <laughs> I mean, this, this arises very much with King Lear because the whole question in King Lear, to, in many people's minds, if you consider that family with the three daughters and the, the no mother and, the, 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 and Lear, what has happened in the past that's made Goneril and Regan the way they are, indeed made Cordelia the way she is, made Lear what he's like, and the most bizarre um, theories arise, um, some of which are, are quite disagreeable. And there's, all, that, that there's a sort of minor trend for thinking that maybe there's been some kind of abuse uh, of the children by Lear, which I think is a very unhelpful thing to mm -hmm. consider because it's such an issue in itself. You know, if you start importing that into the play, I don't think it's very helpful at all. Um, but th that's very fertile ground for speculation as this peculiarly structured family with the two older girls, the, the afterthought, and above all, where is Mrs. Lear? Well, it's the same in As You Like It, of course, because yeah. there's that triplicity. There are the three brothers. Yes. Orlando's the youngest of three brothers, and the dukes have no wives. There are no mothers. That's right. All these girls are motherless, yeah. and this is a real problem, And because if you don't have a mother, you have no model about how to be or how to love or any of these things. Yeah. And mothers are straight, apart from Gertrude, are strangely absent in Shakespeare. They are it seems. absolutely. They are. 
um, apart from Volumnia, perhaps too, the mother and the son in Volumnia. It's, there's yes. a lot of fathers and daughters. Yes. He, there's something in this that's personal to Shakespeare. We always say there's nothing personal autobiographical in Shakespeare's writing, but there is something to do with fathers and daughters, mm. given his two daughters, mm. and indeed fathers and sons, given that he mm. lost a son. Mm. You know, it's, it's impossible not to sense. It's rather welcome to find that he has left a sort of personal um, mark on, on, on his own writing because he's so famously difficult to, mm. to, to interpret. What I loved about your book, if I could just say, mm. is this autobiographical element, because I think yours is, um, you know, through, through writing a biography of a rehearsal process, yeah. you've actually written so richly your theatrical memoirs, your anecdotes, and the texture of the book is so fascinating. We've got um, your ventriloquizing of Lear's voice and all the other voices in the play. We've got emails, we've got um, transcripts of interviews you had with Ian McKellen. Um, and I loved all this textural stuff, and mm. you know, different fonts through yeah. the book to show me who's speaking and whether I'm inside Michael's head or I'm inside Leah's head. And I thought that was very, very creative. Well, thank you. I, I never have wanted to write a rehearsal diary. I'm very <laughs> nervous of rehearsal diaries. The ones I read, I think, are, are, are mawkish in the extreme generally. And also I think it's a breach of confidence sometimes to write about what happens in rehearsal. It is quite a private business. Mm. So I never wanted to do that. But there is a for the first time, there is a certain amount of that in this, what mm. actually went on in rehearsals. Mm. But to me, what amused me about doing such a book, and this is all based on experience I had playing Liam in, in Brooklyn two years ago when I was there for two or three months, <laughs> that the fact that you can wake up, well, in my occasion, no sooner do you arrive at your apartment in Brooklyn and you trip on a paving stone and fall flat in your face and think you've cracked your ribs <laughs> and broken your hip. Uh, on the very eve of a rehearsal for a production that's been planned for two years. I mean, from that starting point, I could immediately see the comedy of my situation. And the fact that you could, because it was a very harsh winter that, that year in New York, that, you know, I go slushing through the snow in the morning, get on the bus and get off the other end and immediately start trying to behave like a despotic tyrant from ancient Britain. You know, there is something comical about the job in, in that sense. But also the engagement was sufficiently long that the season changed. It changed from winter to spring while I and my, my partner, Pruskin, were there. And um, that's just long enough to make you feel that you live in a place. You know, I started dreaming that, of, I had New York dreams, in other words. I sort of forgot I lived in London. Um, and, uh, it's, and also, of course, uh, nature changes, spring begins, mm -hmm. and you suddenly feel, I'm a native here, where do I belong? Well, that's like the movement of the seasons, I'm mm. in As You Like It, of course, you know, it's really cold when, when Celia and Rosalind arrive right. as Ganymede and Aliena yeah. in, in Arden, it, you know, blow, blow thou winter wind, and then, of course, when Orlando is, you know, papering the trees with all his love poems to Rosalind, suddenly it's under the greenwood tree, and, it, and suddenly there is this sense of um, the seasons changing and time yeah. moving, and you get that in King Lear as well, of course. I want to know what Rosalind and Hamlet would have talked about in the Forest of Arden, because <laughs> he'd presumably arrived reading with his doublet all unbraced and whatever it is. I think he'd have forgotten about Ophelia. I, I think definitely absolutely. think he'd have forgotten about it. When he once saw Rosalind, he would have known she was his soulmate. I'm absolutely. Mm. Although, of course, Orlando and Rosalind are, have this complementarity because she has discovered the masculine, empowered side of herself as soon as she puts on the trousers. And he, although he's a fantastic wrestler and she's fallen in love with him at a wrestling match, nevertheless, he's got this very sensitive. Yeah. Um, feminine side, this nurturing side to him that loves and nurtures old Adam and restores the sense of 
fathers and sons and paternity um, in the play, which has been completely lost because mm. Rosalind's got no father. He's just, you know, bunked off to the forest. Well, he's been exiled, actually. But he's gone to the Forest of Arden. She, he doesn't send anybody back for her. She's lost. She has no mother. And there is this sense that, that parental love has been lost in this play. But Orlando, I think, restores that. And it's so lovely to see a, a teenager caring for an old age pensioner, which yeah. is Orlando for old Adam, and also completely different classes. He crosses the classes. But you also, if I may interrupt, yes. you make a very, it's, a, it's a one of the really fine perceptions you have in the book, which is that you note that Orlando traveling with old Adam is a direct reflection of what was happening in England at the time, yes. with the landing closures and very poor harvests at the time, yes. which meant that people were taking to the road and living a very rough life. So they really are taking a risk with their lives. Well, it's like Adam. people are taking a risk with their lives right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's why these plays, when Lear goes onto the heath mm. and he's banished, or he banishes himself, I'm not quite sure which happens, <laughs> um, he is suddenly a refugee in yeah. his own kingdom, yeah. as Rosalind and Orlando are refugees. And this is so modern, it speaks to us right now. Yeah. And how, you know, how are we going to deal with it? Yes. Where do you think, where does Rosalind get her wisdom from? Without the mother, who would perhaps normally impart it, she, I don't know where she's, has she been away at university? Has she been at Württemberg or something in disguise? Because she, she wouldn't have allowed, been allowed to be at yes, that, in right. that stage. But so I think, where does it come from? Well, there's something innate. She has an innate wisdom, but she's also been taught about love, I think, from Celia, who has loved her absolutely unconditionally, far more than Rosalind's ever loved Celia back. And of course, as soon as they're in Arden and she thinks there's a chance of um, getting together with Orlando, she completely you know, discards Celia. And that's Celia's tragedy. But yes, I think she's been taught selflessness and, um, and wit as well. And they've banded wit together. And she's just got this natural wit. And, and so has Orlando to some extent. Because um, when he meets Jake Quiz, um, um, uh, Jaquiz says to Orlando, um, uh, what's, what's your love called then? And, and um, uh, Orlando says, oh, she's called Rosalind. And, and uh, Jake says, I don't like her name. And, and Orlando, he's quite quick. He says, um, well, there was no thought of pleasing you when she was christened. <laughs> so he is a match for um, Rosalind, a match for her rapier-like whip. And I'd think that Hamlet um, would also have been a, a match. He might not have had quite the loving kindness and the gentillesse that Orlando has. He's got this wonderful quality of gentleness. And gentle is a word that is used in this play, as you like it, more, I think, than in any, don't quote me on this, but I think it's more than in any other of Shakespeare's plays. And it surrounds this knightly figure of Orlando, who is the son of a knight. It's I think the, they would yes, have maybe got Maybe it's just the, the people who've been cast as Orlando, but I can't help feeling that he's often outclassed by Rosalind, that somehow he's a bit of a sort of callow youth in comparison. Well, she teaches him, doesn't she? She mm. tutors him in love, and she says to him, now, just don't be so over-romantic, she says. Um, he says, well, I, I'm going to die for love. And she says, oh, don't do that, she says. You know, you know this poor old world is 6,000 years old, which is what they must have thought it was then. And, um, and nobody's ever actually died for love. Um, and then she says to him, after they've had this mock marriage in the forest, um, so how long would you have her after you have possessed her? She asks him the question about sex. And he says, oh, forever and a day. 
and she says, no, no, say the day without the ever, because she's so wise. She has this kind of innate wisdom, but it's, it's also been tutored in a harsh college of the court where she's learnt about betrayal. Her uncle has betrayed her, her father's disappeared, um, and I think she's felt very victimised, and she doesn't dare trust love. So she has learnt Do you in think that, that the marriage will work? Do you think they will live happily ever after? Well, I have e every optimism for them. And there are four couples, of course. Mm. Um, there's Celia, who mm. falls in love with the bad brother, Oliver, who's been converted, so that's all right. And then there's um, Touchstone, has this falls in lust with Audrey. I think that'll last quite a long time, although Jaquiz doesn't think so. And then, of course, there's Phoebe, who's paired off with Sylvius, and Phoebe has fallen in love at first sight with Rosalind dressed as Ganymede. And of course, in today's world, Phoebe could have, had a, um, could have become uh, Ganymede's girlfriend, but in that world, she had to be married off to Sylvius. And so there is hope for all the four couples, um, but my greatest hope is for Rosalind and Orlando because theirs has been a courtship by conversation and the conversation will go on forever and a day. <laughs> One hopes, so I have hope for And them. I think you leave, you leave the theatre sort of smiling. You leave in a oh. very positive sort of floating, Dancing, off the, yes. floating off the ground. I mood, think if it, it's worked really well. If it's worked, you go out just feeling triumphant and so happy for human nature that there can be such hope. And at the end of Lear... Yes, we're all miserable and suicidal. <laughs> no, you're full of beans at the end of Lear. This is, you know, um, like all great works of art, I mean, great music, great painting, um, or indeed the blues in music. You know, the more you sing the blues, the blues go away. It's, it's, it's a, there's what the Greeks call catharsis, isn't it? I don't think people come out of Lear, if it's well done, feeling depressed. I think they feel what an astounding play this is. There is hope at the end of Lear. There are only two people left alive. Uh, but it only takes two people, doesn't it, to take hands and walk into the future. Um, and that's Albany and Edgar. So I don't think that. And the fact that it looks so uh, remorselessly at very dark areas of the human psyche. It's so ravishingly well written. I mean, the closer I've got to it, the more amazed I am by it. Um, that I think you cannot but be elevated by it. I, it I, I'm not sure that, it, but it may be true of some people, but I, I think you feel better after Leon before you, you come out whistling, really. You're quite, it's not quite whistling the tunes, but um, I think it has, at its best, it has that effect. And he's like so universal, isn't he? Yeah. And, and we're looking at all our fathers and grandfathers. We are. Oh, and, yes. and it does teach us something about or should teach us something about how to retire well. Yes, and, and, get, and get good legal advice when you do, you know. <laughs> don't, in, subject inheritance tax, don't give, all you, don't give your kids all your money before you die. So there's all that, and that in a way, quite without laughing about it too much, I mean, that's one of the ways into the play for, for a contemporary audience who are tired of seeing thrones and people coming on and sitting on them and acting in a sort of Shakespearean way is to think of him more as the CEO of, mm -hmm. of a big business who's mm -hmm. quite rightly, actually, quite rightly decided to retire because he feels, Lear feels, that he's reached his, his retirement point, that he maybe isn't functioning as efficiently as he used to be. Maybe he's, his temper is worse than it, it used to be. There's something in him that makes him want to divide the kingdom into three. When he divides the kingdom into three, it's a lot more sensible than dividing it into two. Um, 
because you know if two if if Goneril fought with Regan, then in his mind Cordelia could interpose. There could be a moderation, but modulation, but moderation mm -hmm. between the three of them. So it's actually quite a canny idea politically. What he, he the cardinal mistake which he makes within you know two minutes of coming on is allowing his vanity to take over. So that he says, I wonder which of you loves me the most because mm -hmm. I give it the most. And he barely means it. It's a sort of party joke. And but he's so voracious thing. for love, isn't he? Yes, it's a terrible need, mm. particularly for Cordelia's love, mm. which is something sinister about it. It's just the love of the youngest daughter, the, the mm. afterthought, which mm. of course infuriates her. So these are all very human factors. Um, and you don't need a throne, you don't need, you know... It's difficult to stage the first scene of Lear, but, but the actual content within it should be very accessible to the audience. And if you can just in engage an audience with that first scene, including having some tolerance of Lear, despite the ghastly things he says to Cordelia, then you're in for the evening, mm -hmm. you know, with a bit what of What I thought was so interesting, because I saw, saw you play it last Wednesday, was that you didn't play him as a demented old man. No. You played him as a very angry man. Mm. And I do think there is something about ageing that makes people very, very yeah. angry and irascible. Yeah. Makes me think of that um, poem by Dylan Thomas, Rage, Rage. Rage and it, your, your yeah. performance was full of power and anger, but poignancy as well. And I felt, thought that was just um, masterly, I must say. Michael, I'm tempted to say that you wait forever for you to play King Lear and then two come along <laughs> at once. <laughs> That's like a bus. <laughs> and the I should bus. explain that this book, King Lear in Brooklyn, is the story of the uh, production of King Lear a couple of years ago. Yeah. Not to be confused, I don't think, with the current nationwide tour <laughs> that you are barnstorming up and down the land as King Lear. Yeah. And future dates include Manchester, Bath, Truro, Cambridge and Morven, ladies and gentlemen. And you should <laughs> certainly do it all you can to see the production. So actors who have played King Lear or are about to play King Lear tell me, you know, the usual expression is a mountain to climb. And yet you've been rushing up to the summit with Down like again, a two-year-old. Exactly. Absolutely. So is it as difficult as they say? How have you found it? Not just once, but twice in as many years. I don't want to say it's easy, uh, but it's not that difficult either. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very unusual situation. The, the New York production came about as a result of a, a chain of uh, circumstances. And I thought that would probably be the end of it. Um, to have a second shot at the it's very rare to be able to revisit these parts anyway at any time. Occasionally you come across someone who's played Hamlet twice or Viola twice, but now the profession is so crowded, it's, it's unusual. Gilgood played Hamlet six times, I think, and Lear four times, but that's, those days are absolutely gone because there's just too many of us vying for the same <laughs> roles. Um, and actually to have two shots at it at all is unusual. To have two shots at it, um, in two completely different productions, in two completely different countries, two completely different cultures, two completely different directors. That's really unusual. And I f I'm, I'm very happy about it indeed. Um, and I love it. I'm having the time of my life, and that's the truth. It's, um, it's, I would hate to have missed it, and there is the question of how, what age you should play it at, and you know, not to leave it too late or anything, because then you don't have the puff for it, or you don't have the memory for it. And I seem to have caught it just in time. Um, well, not Justin, I caught it in plenty, <laughs> plenty, plenty of time. I'll maybe do a third production soon. <laughs> I mean, what, what are the, what are, how are the productions different? What, uh, you know, compare and contrast, as it were? In the, in the most obvious sense, the, the one I did in New York was something like, in a, in a formation, something like this, except that we had a, a three-sided stage. In other words, where you are now would have been stage. It's more like the Minerva in Chichester or some configurations of the old Cottesloe than, than it is tonight, obviously. 
so it was three-sided, but the rear of the stage was very big. It, it opened out to the sides and was very high. So it was big enough to take the big effects, like the storm. But a lot of the play, one felt one was in a kind of debating chamber, so that though Lear has very, in fact, he doesn't have any soliloquies, but when you did use the audience, they were right there, right there, and right here, which is a fantastic privilege. I mean, we all, modern actors all love this. But you could also do the big stuff up there. So, and it held about 390, 400 people, the, the auditorium. We're now playing every conceivable kind of proscenium theatre in this country. I mean, Bath, Richmond, the, the old Matcham theatres, the hall in Cornwall, which is different again. It's a huge variety. And that, to me, is one of the joys of touring in this slightly old-fashioned barnstorming sense, you know, where you take your play for a week to a theatre near you and then off you go and, you know, meet your colleagues at Crew Junction Station, you know, and all that. <laughs> So it, it really, uh, I, I respond to that very much and always have done. I used to do it in the 80s a great deal and uh, it's, it's quite deep in the blood. So it couldn't be more different in terms of the circumstances than playing it in a relatively small studio theatre every night for seven weeks. Um, it just means it has to be bigger and has to be more, more generously given in, in these theatres and that, that I, I do enjoy. As to the actual production styles, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the New York one was more abstract in its design, very beautiful abstract design sort of gold, red, sort of metallic set, but very few, very little furniture. Uh, as we do nowadays so much, the costumes were from various different periods, particularly periods within the 20th century. Ours is more specifically between the wars, between the First and Second World War, but I think, like so many of our choices in, in this respect nowadays, um, it's a way of stopping the audience worrying too much about it or considering what, where are we. It, it, it's suggestive of various periods without being very specifically attached to a particular period. Michael, you made a very mm. interesting point there that Lear has no soliloquies. Absolutely. And nor does Rosalind. No, that's right. And that's really fascinating because mm. we see them always, Lear and Rosalind, always in relation to other people. Yeah. And that's what gives them their authenticity as human beings yeah. um, and makes them endlessly writable about if yeah, or subjects for biographies. Yeah, pity he doesn't have an epilogue, Leah, like Rosalind. I know. What would you I say? Know. I mean, <laughs> well, the only <laughs> other great epilogue, really, is either um, Puck's, but really Prospero's. That yeah. and, and, and Rosalind is the only female character that Shakespeare gives an epilogue to. Yeah. And it is a, a wonderfully witty epilogue, and it's when the boy actor f who's come in as a girl to marry Orlando finally unmasks herself as the boy she always That's had right, been. Yeah. And when Michelle Terry did it at the Globe last summer, she came in in this glorious farthingale, like Elizabeth I, mm. all golden and cream rough. And then on the words, if I were a woman, she suddenly ripped off the farthingale, and there she was just in her breeches um, and hose, and there was this gasp from the audience. And I thought, this must have been what it was yeah. like in 1599. Yeah. It yeah. was so such an imaginative thing to do. What would the play be like? It would be much less, in a way, if there was no epilogue. Would you feel that the play was then more closed off? I mean, the epilogue is quite important, isn't but it? But some productions skip it. Do they? They skip it, yes. And I think that's such a shame. Yeah. Or they put a pop song in its place. Um, and I, I, Because it's very difficult in our day and age for a a, a woman who's been playing Rosalind to say, if I were a woman. And yeah. in fact, in the National Theatre's recent production, Rosalie Craig said, as I am a woman. And it robbed the play, I'm sorry to say, National Theatre, right. but it robbed building. the play of all that layering of gender identity, of gender melting into each other, of inclusivity. And I thought it was a terrible mistake. 
But you, you can can't see how do it better arose, than Shakespeare. Can't you? I mean, you can see how it's a difficulty. It's a yes, difficulty. but it's not trusting the audience. It's mm. saying, you know, actually, you're not, you know, you're not up to, up to it. You, you don't <laughs> understand it. And I thought it was a, a, a real mistake that. How do you think if Leo were to meet Rosalind, how would what would happen? How would it go? Kindred spirits? Hardly. Which I suppose he'd be her grandfather, wouldn't he? At least. At least. <laughs> he'd be grandpa. I think she'd be. Would she give him sort of advice? Tell him. To I think it would be fine. I mean, I have a brief for Leah. I like him. Yeah. And I think if you'd known him ten years before the play began, I think they'd have gone on fine. Because actually, he's got a lot of humour in him. He has. And uh, you know, he's highly efficient. He's very good linguistically. I mean, even that first scene when he's so enraged, almost out of control. I mean, his his actual utterance is extraordinarily well formed and almost lyrical. It's very stylish. Mm. Uh, you know, not long after this play, Shakespeare wrote The Winter's Tale, in which mm. someone in extreme emotion, Leontes, um, his, la his language and his manner of speaking becomes very disjointed and syncopated. But Lear's is extraordinarily fluent and fluid, mm. even when he's emotionally out of control, which is curious. So I think he's had a great past. The older characters in the play, Kent, Gloucester, and indeed The Fool, if he's played old, um, all have a great loyalty to him, mm. which must be based on something. Mm. So something's gone wrong recently, I think. Yes, I think Rosalind would have wooed him as a granddaughter would woo a grandfather. Absolutely. And I don't think she'd been confrontational with him like Goneril mm. is confrontational. I think she would have known how to manage him. Probably. Um, and I think it would have been a great um, pairing, in fact. <laughs> and what a shame they didn't meet. Know. And, you know, he goes onto the heath to learn more about himself. She goes into Arden, and Orlando does. And it's the great subconscious. And somehow, in this great subconscious, we all learn more about ourselves and we learn about forgiveness and, um, and self-knowledge. And I think there's a lot of similarity between the two plays that we haven't really mm. explored. I mean, they're both British plays but have French connections. Yeah, um, yeah. And they're both about toxic families, mm. uh, really toxic families. Um, and they're all about brotherly hatred as well, yes, terrible yeah. fraternal yes, hatred. Yes. Um, I think Rosalind would have managed Leah. I don't know what Leah would have made of her. He would have probably been quite benign towards her. I think so. Yeah, I think so. That's my belief and hope. <laughs> I'm so glad, I'm so glad. Andrew and Michael will be signing copies of that enthralling books in the main bookshop, which is back in the main foyer at the main entrance, just round the corner and round again. It's been a lovely session. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Angela Thurwell and Michael Pennington. <laughs>